0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's secondhandbookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah, and thank you for joining me this week on our journey through The Stand. I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. So before we jump into Chapter 54, I just wanted to give a quick little update on the CBS All Access adaptation of The Stand. And that's basically just, I saw that Odessa Young, who plays Fran in the upcoming miniseries, did some press interviews because she is co-starring in a new biopic movie about Shirley Jackson. Of course, Shirley Jackson is the author who wrote The Lottery and The Haunting of Hill House, which is amazing. And she basically, they asked her some questions about The Stand, um, obviously how King has been influenced by Shirley Jackson, but... When talking about the adaptation that she's starring in, um, she did kind of confirm that this miniseries will be modernized to a 2020 era rather than taking place in 1990, as the uncut version does. And I'm just going to read a quick quote from her. She says, I read all 1000 and whatever pages of the book. Yes, it is faithful. I think that we were pretty clear about the fact that it was going to be set in the present day which meant, obviously, that certain things had to change. Um, In parentheses, it says King's novel was originally set in 1980. An expanded reissue moved it forward a decade. Young continues to say, Instead of being a Springsteen-esque rock star, for example, Larry Underwood is more someone that you might find at Coachella or something like that. That's one example of the certain modernization. Um, She also says that the writers and Josh Boone have stayed very true to the book. Um, She says, I think that the writers that we worked with on The Stand, they had their work cut out for them, obviously, because it's such a huge, epic story, but they were all such huge fans of The Stand. Some of the writers were childhood fans of Stephen King and had been waiting for this moment their whole life. So the material feels extremely safe in their hands. So, yeah, we're going to be getting the stand, basically. I I don't know for sure that it'll be 2020, but uh, 2019 maybe. At least it's going to be a modern take on the stand. Um, So that should be interesting to see how they kind of adjust everything. King was able to do it uh, quite well from 1980 to 1990. And I know that technology plays a huge part in our world today. And I'm sure that they have that all worked out. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how they go about it. I'm still optimistic. I'm still excited to see uh, what they do with this. So you can read more from Odessa Young. She has more to say on the article was on denofgeek.com. I will also I just dropped my book on me again. I did that last week, too. Sorry. Um, (laughs) But I have also included some new uh, content on my own blog, thecircleopens.com. I was finally able to move that from my old host to uh, my new host. I've been working on this site pretty much nonstop for the past like two weeks, and I still have so much to do. But I'm hoping that by the time I'm done, this will kind of be kind of um, a lexicon, if you will, of the stand for fans. Um, I've started to include chapter summaries, uh, which include dates, chap- uh, character information obviously there will be spoilers <laughs> because you can't create a site around this book without including them. I'm also working on a comprehensive timeline throughout the whole book. So yeah, I have a lot going on, but I'm really excited about it. I hope that you guys will check it out and let me know what you think. So that's pretty much it. Uh, just to plug it, it's thecircleopens.com. And I think that now is a good time for us to jump into this week's chapter review. So usually when I write out these episodes, I include a recap of the previous chapter. And this week, I forgot to do that because there was a lot going on in the world and in my head, and I just, it slipped my mind completely. So I'm going to give you a quick recap of chapter 53 off the top of my head. (laughs) And basically, chapter 53, we got our first community-wide Boulder free zone committee meeting. Um, The seven ad hoc committee members were voted in unanimously, supposedly, unanimously um, as permanent uh, members of the Free Zone Committee, thanks to Harold Lauder, of all people. Larry and Nadine have their final confrontation together, where Nadine asks Larry to make love to her because she wants to stay in Boulder. And if Larry makes love to her, she can stay. Her ties to Flag will be broken. However, Larry has committed himself to becoming a better person. He has committed himself to Lucy Swan. And so he tells her, basically, go take a hike, which she does. (laughs) She takes a planchette with her. And we learned a little bit about Nadine Um, back in college. She played around with a planchette with some college girls. And that was the first, maybe not the first time, but this is when Flag supposedly reaches out to her, um, kind of foreshadowing her future destiny. So, Nadine takes this planchette she's found in Boulder and she reaches out to Flag and he begins to write and give her instructions. We also learn briefly that uh, three days after Larry had rejected her, she moved in with Harold Lauder. So, in chapter 54, we are going to find out how that happened. Hopefully, I didn't miss anything too important in that particular uh, recap. So, chapter 54 begins with excerpts from the minutes of the August 19th Free Zone committee meeting. This is no longer ad hoc. This is now permanent now that the seven have been voted into the committee thanks to Harold Louder. They even decide to send Harold a letter of thanks signed by each member. So the committee decides when to send the three scouts west to Vegas. That is, if they will agree to go. It's been decided that Larry will ask Judge Ferris... Sue will ask Dana Jurgens, and Nick and Ralph will talk to Tom. Basically, the people who nominated these three will be the ones to ask them to go. Larry points out that they can't send them all together, or they could get caught all together. Larry goes on to say, Both the judge and Dana would probably suspect that we had sent more than one spy, but as long as they didn't know the actual names, they couldn't tattle. Fran said that tattle was hardly the word, considering what the man in the West might do to them, if he is a man. So the tentative schedule is to send Judge Ferris on August 26th, Dana on the 27th, and Tom on the 28th. Nick said that, with the exception of Tom Cullen, who will be told when to come back by means of a post-hypnotic suggestion, the other two must be told to come back when their own discretion advises them to, but that the weather could become a factor. There can be heavy snow in the mountains by the first week of October. Nick suggested that each of them should be advised to spend no more than three weeks in the west. So depending on when they can get back and the weather, it's possible that they might not even see the three until spring. So Larry suggests giving the judge a head start and leaving on the 21st. Next, they discuss the growing population of Boulder. Glenn seems to think that based on how many seats are in the Chattaqua Park, I'm sorry if I still said that wrong, you guys. The Free Zone now has close to over 700 people. He suggests forming a consensus committee to get a proper headcount. Fran seconds the motion, but Larry interjects, Well, don't we have enough other things to worry about without hacking around with a bunch of diddly shit bureaucracy? Clearly, Larry doesn't know how government works. (laughs) So if nothing else, they'll need a headcount to at least know where to move the meetings since the Chattaqua auditorium would be too small. So they put the consensus committee on the agenda for the next public meeting. And next is a discussion that is brought up again by Glenn. He explains to the group that the town dooms crier, Charlie Impending, is gone. His house is empty and his things are gone as well. He believes that they should know who is coming in but also who is leaving. Ralph is indignant. He seems to think that if people want to leave, fine. If they want to go to the Dark Man, then good riddance. But Charlie's departure brings up a touchy subject. While Stu can see Glenn's point, you know, having people leave could be a dangerous thing. Is it like a drain of information? So what do they do? Do they put people in jail? Glenn seems to think that they ought to consider that option strongly, but Fran is firmly set against it. She says that that's secret police tactics, basically. And Glenn says, yes, that's about what it comes down to. But our position here is extremely precarious. You're putting me in the position of having to advocate repression. And I think that's very unfair. I'm asking you if you want to allow a brain drain to go on in light of our adversary. Glenn asks Fran if she's ready to take the chance that someone could tell Flag that Mother Abigail is gone. But Fran points out that Charlie could already do that. So Glenn asks, what about the strength of numbers, or that they don't have a doctor yet, or how they're getting on in the technical side of things? But before the discussion can get too heated, Stu makes a motion that they table the discussion of locking people up for contrary views, and it passes 6-1, to with Glenn voting against it. He explains you better get used to the idea that you're going to have to deal with this sooner or later, and probably sooner, Charlie impending spilling his guts to flag is bad enough. You just have to ask yourself if you want to multiply what impending knows by some theoretical X factor. Well, never mind. You voted to table. But here's another thing. We're elected indefinitely. Did any of you think of that? We don't know if we're serving six weeks, six months, or six years. My suggestion would be one year. That ought to take us to the end of the beginning, in Harold's phrase, I'd like to see the one-year thing on the agenda for our next public meeting. One last item, and I'm done. Government by town meeting, which is essentially what we have with ourselves as town of selectmen, is going to be fine for a while until we've got about 3,000 people or so. But when things get too big, most of the people who show up at the public meetings are going to be cliques and folks with access to grind. Fluoridation makes you sterile. People who want one sort of flag, things like that. My suggestion would be that we all think very hard about how to turn Boulder into a republic by late next winter or early spring. There's some informal discussion of Glenn's last proposal, but they take no action at this meeting. Instead, Nick is recognized by Stu and he gives Ralph something to read. Nick has proposed to see if the Free Zone will create a Department of Law and Order with Stu Redman at its head. Stu is a bit taken back by this, but... Nick is concerned about the lack of law in Boulder. Nick proposes that the headquarters of this Department of Law and Order would be in the Boulder County Courthouse. Stu would have the power to deputize men on his own up to 30, over 30 on the majority vote of the Free Zone Committee, and over 70 on a majority vote of the Free Zone in public session. That's the resolution I'd like to see on the next agenda. Of course, we can approve until we're black in the face and it will do no good unless Stu goes along. But Nick points out that there are people racing their cars. There's a drunken fellow walking down the street, breaking the windows of all of the empty houses. And a man who beat to hell his woman and her lover, when he found them together, could have had a gun. And what would have happened then? Those two people would be dead, and Boulder would have a murderer walking free. But Stu is the private and public moderator, so people will already see him as an authority figure. And Nick thinks that, you know what, he's a good man too. So Stu reluctantly accepts the nomination under the agreement that is only for a year, and then he's stepping down. They put the motion on the floor, but Fran speaks up asking what happens if he's shot. Stu may not think that'll happen, but what if he's wrong? She reminds them that she is going to have a baby. Fran cries, but she gets herself under control, and they pass the motion 6-1 to one, with Fran voting against it. Glenn brings up one more point about the law. Glenn says that I believe Stu is one of the fairest men I've ever met. But law enforcement without a court isn't justice. It's just vigilantism ruled by the fist. Now suppose that fellow we all know had gotten a forty-five and killed his woman and her lover. And further suppose that Stu, as our marshal, went out and collared him and put him in the calaboose. Then what? How long do we keep him there? Legally, we couldn't keep him at all, at least according to the constitution we adopted at our meeting last night because under that document, a man's innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Now, as a matter of fact, we all know we'd keep him locked up. We wouldn't feel safe with him walking the streets, so we'd do it even though it would be patently unconstitutional. Because when safety and constitutionality are at a sword's point, safety must win out. But it behooves us to make safety and constitutionality <laughs> synonymous as quickly as we can. We need to think about a court system. Fran agrees that it's something to think about, but moves to adjourn as it's late. The motion passes seven to nothing. As Fran and Stu walk home, they discuss briefly the Marshall nomination. Stu thinks he's the logical nomination, but Fran asks what about her and the baby? Stu says, I oughta know what you want for the baby. Haven't you told me enough times? You want him brought into a world that isn't totally crazy. You want things safe for him or her, and I want that too but I wasn't going to say that in front of the rest. It's between you and me. You and the baby are the two main reasons I said okay. He tells her everything will be fine, but Fran doesn't think it will be. That night she lays awake and can't help but think about the dark man and the twisted coat hanger he had held in her dreams. So Harold Louder is now part of the burial committee, headed up by a former undertaker's assistant named Chad Norris. Chad breaks them up into three six-man crews, all given a specific area of town to work. Nora suggests that they think of the bodies as cordwood, as it might help them deal with the process. They do use gas masks, um, and they do have to put on guard armory after entering the Church of Latter-day Saints on Table Mesa Drive. Over 70 people had gone there, filled with the plague, and died there. The stink was enormous. It takes them all most of the afternoon to empty the church. Harold supposed that, as the burial committee grew with the population, it was just barely possible that they might get most of the bodies in the ground by the first heavy snowfall. Not that he, himself, expected to be around by then. And most of the people would never know how real the danger of some new epidemic, one they weren't immune to, had been. In Harold fashion, Harold is still bitter about the free zone committee. He doesn't feel good enough, but he never has. He believes that the world is just a beauty contest, and that hasn't changed with the plague. By the time they finish up, they watch the bodies get dumped into a large plastic shroud. A man on Harold's team with the name of Weezak had to look away. When they finish, Norris thanks the men for their help. They put away close to a thousand units that day. Units, otherwise known as bodies. Norris gives the men an out if they don't think that they can cut it but he believes this is the most important job in the free zone. It isn't too bad now, but if we still got 20,000 corpses in Boulder next month, when it gets to be wet weather, people are going to get sick. If you feel like you can make it, I'll see you tomorrow morning at the bus station. They all agree to return, and Norris calls them good men. And Harold is beginning to feel something strange. A sense of camaraderie. He's afraid of this because this was not part of his plan. Weezak says goodbye to Harold, calling him Hawk. And of course, Harold initially thinks that this is some kind of insult, that Weezak is making fun of him. What kind of joke was that? A bad one, of course. Cheap sarcasm, calling fat, pimply Harold louder Hawk. He felt the old black hate rise directed at Weezak this time. And then it subsided in sudden confusion. He wasn't fat anymore. He couldn't even properly be called stout. His pimples had vanished over the last seven weeks. Weezak didn't know he had once been a school joke. Weezak didn't know that Harold's father had once asked him if he was a homosexual. Weezak didn't know that Harold had been his popular sister's cross to bear. And if he had known, Weezak probably wouldn't have given a sweet shit. All of a sudden, the old grudges, the old hurts, and the unpaid debts seemed as worthless as the paper money choking all the cash registers of America. But could that be true? Harold figures if he was strong enough to resist the low opinion of others, then he could resist their good opinion. Harold suddenly thinks that he could be an asset to this community, but they had shut him out, the committee. There is a battle brewing in his mind because so what if they shut him out? He had the brains to pick the lock on the door they had slammed in his face. Internally, he wants to shut himself up. For once, couldn't he climb down off of his high horse? He went on towards his house, his mind worrying and gnawing at the problem he thought he had solved long ago. When he got home, there was a small white Vespa parked at the curb and a woman sitting on his friend's step. Nadine Cross is waiting for Harold. She introduces herself, and Harold cannot help but look her over. She was wearing a pair of light cotton twill slacks that clung to her long legs and a sleeveless blouse of some light blue silky material. No bra under it either. How old was she? 30? 35? Younger, maybe. She was going prematurely gray. All over? The endlessly horny and endlessly virginal, seemingly, part of his mind inquired, and his heart beat a little faster. Harold introduces himself and mentions that she came in with Larry's party. He calls Larry a hell of a nice guy, and Nadine laughs and calls Larry a prince. Harold asks what he can do for her, and she says that he can invite her in for dinner, which he does. Nadine cooks the dinner while Harold cleans himself up. They enjoy light conversation over food, and Harold observes Nadine more closely. She was beautiful, ripe and beautiful. Her hair, which he had pulled back into a casual horsetail in order to cook more easily, was twisted with strands of pure white, not gray, as he had first thought. Her eyes were grave and dark, and when they focused unhesitatingly on his, Harold felt giddy. Her voice was low and confidential. The sound of it began to affect him in a way that was both uncomfortable and almost excruciatingly pleasant. Nadine's words are suggestive but Harold can't seem to figure out if she wants him or not. He has such a low opinion of himself and he feels like he's just misinterpreting things. Nadine makes them some tea and Harold finally asks if he can help her with something. She takes him into the living room and asks him to keep the blinds down so they can have some privacy. Then she kisses him. Before things can go too far, Nadine remarks that she knows he's a virgin, so they'll take things slow. Harold is obviously turned on, and he calls his arousal the ridiculous thing, and this is so not really important to this chapter, but I'm going to read it anyway because it made me kind of laugh out loud for a bit. (laughs) King writes, the ridiculous thing was unaware of its own comical appearance, for its business was deadly serious. The business of virgins is always deadly serious, not pleasure, but experience. I'm probably a juvenile for laughing as much as I did at that passage. Um, I always say King has a way with words. And when describing genitalia, he is a master. <laughs> so after Nadine takes care of Harold, you guys know what that means. Um, this doesn't take very long. It embarrasses Harold, but Nadine doesn't mind it. She explains that she is a virgin too. Harold finds this very hard to believe, Ha ha ha! See what I did there. But Nadine explains that she's a virgin and she has to stay that way because it's for someone else to make her not a virgin anymore. Harold asks who, and Nadine says, "You know who? Him." But Nadine promises that they can still do things together. They can do anything and everything, but for that one thing, and that one thing isn't so important. Harold is so tempted, but he knows there has to be a price. Nothing is for free. Nadine knows what's in his heart, what he wants, because it's in his ledger. She could read it, but she doesn't need to. She knows that he moved it from the hearth to the attic. Harold is startled and demands to know how she knows that. Nadine says, I know because he told me. He, you could say that he, wrote me a letter. And what's more important, he told me about you, Harold, how the cowboy took your woman and then kept you off the free zone committee. He wants us to be together, Harold, and he's generous. From now until when we leave here, it's recess for you and me. Harold asks what he wants later. Nadine explains that he wants what Harold wants. He wants what Harold almost did to Stu on the first night they went hunting for Mother Abigail, but on a grander scale. And when that's done, they can go to him. They can be with him and stay with him. But what if Harold says no? Nadine says that he can say no, but life will move on. She'll find some way of doing the thing that she has to do, and Harold will go on with his life. But it will all grow tiresome for him. He'll end up wondering how amazing they could have been together. He'll wonder what life would have been like on his side of the world. So Nadine asks him if she should put her shirt back on or take everything else off. How long did he think? He didn't know. Later, he wasn't even sure he had struggled with the question, but when he spoke, the words tasted like death in his mouth. In the bedroom, let's go in the bedroom. She smiled at him, such a smile of triumph and sensual promise that he shuddered from it, and his own eager response to it. She took his hand, And Harold Louder succumbed to his destiny. So these are my thoughts on chapter 54. A lot is being decided in these free zone committee meetings. They have not yet asked Ferris, Dana, or Tom to go west, but they make plans to. Larry, Sue, and Nick and Ralph will be the ones to ask them. And Tom will take a little bit more time as they plan to go ahead with this post-hypnosis to make him understand his mission and when to come back. They don't want the three to stay any longer than three weeks if they can help it. There is the interesting debate about jailing people who might try to leave to go west. And I can understand a bit of Glenn's point with this being a matter of security. But I also don't think that's a good way to restart a republic because where is the line? They can't keep people in Boulder who don't want to stay in Boulder. And who is to say that people who are leaving are going to go west? They already know that if they can't get the power on by the colder months, people will leave. So it's a very slippery slope. And I think Stu was right to table the discussion. I also think it's kind of humorous that they're worried about people leaving to go west to uh, take information to Flag when they're planning on sending spies over there to get information from Flag to come back. <laughs> But I get it. I get the discussion. I get the thoughts from both sides of the table there. The matter of law and order is also a good one because especially with more and more people arriving in Boulder, things could escalate quickly. And if you have no law, no police, no courts, it's essentially a lawless land. It's a nice thought to think that everyone would be nice to each other and no crimes would be committed, but that's not the human race. That's not human nature. Um, I think we all know this. There are always bad apples. Mistakes can be made, accidents happen. People guided by good are drawn to Boulder, but does that mean they're all good through and through? No, because people are complicated and people have flaws. There are crimes of passion, of desperation. It's a good idea to have some kind of marshal in place. And yes, Stu is the logical choice. As Nick points out, he's already an authoritative figure, and people like and respect Stu. Which kind of leads me to Fran being upset about Stu taking over this department, even for a year. She's worried about herself and the baby. What if something happens to him? And I understand her fears, but it feels like that's a discussion for her to have with Stu outside of the committee. Her baby is a personal thing. It's a personal issue. And she shouldn't be trying to use that to sway committee business. Um, Maybe I'm just being a little too cold about it, but it's not the first time she's kind of brought in personal emotional thoughts. And I get that there's a discussion to be had, but this is also a committee to reform this country. So her being afraid of being left alone with her baby, I don't know. It's not, I I understand, I sympathize, but it's not something that should be Stu, who's the logical choice to get law and order started in this new world. That shouldn't be the only reason why he doesn't do it. And again, I like Fran. I think she's a great character, um, but I still don't understand why she's part of this committee. I don't really know what she brings to the table in terms of rebuilding this new society other than her own emotional points of view. So anyway, um, before I go on a rant about that, Harold is starting to feel like part of this community. Uh, The men who are part of the burial committee are treating him like a friend, like an asset, like a colleague. They even have a nickname for him, Hawk. And this is something Harold was not expecting. He's starting to think that despite the committee shutting him out, he could be an asset to Boulder. He could push his way through that door. But he already has a plan. So Harold is confused. Isn't it crazy what camaraderie and friendship can do to old hurts and grudges and resentments? More and more people are arriving in Boulder, and Harold doesn't recognize a lot of them. So his whole life doesn't have to revolve around Stu and Fran and this free zone committee. He could still be someone in Boulder. He could have new people in his life. But then, of course, Nadine shows up and seduces him and blows any chance Harold might have had left to go down the right path. Nadine has already accepted her fate after being rejected by Larry. And so, but she does give Harold a choice. Harold chooses her and Flagg, and like Nadine, his fate is sealed. It's not the first time a guy has made a bad decision with uh, his ridiculous thing. <laughs> But there are quite a few pages here between Harold and Nadine, and I tried to sum it up because a lot of this has to do with Harold's low self-esteem, Nadine's demure and pointed flirtation, and basically how horny Harold is over her. So <laughs> I tried not to focus too much on that. And, you know, we know now what Flagg wrote to Nadine with that planchette in the last chapter. He told her all about Harold, his ledger, what was in his heart, what he wanted to do, how he lost quote unquote fran to the cowboy who then shut him out of the committee never mind the fact that fran was never his to begin with so they're really just poking at those sore points and clearly flag has no problem with harold messing around with his chosen lady as long as harold doesn't take her virginity that one little thing he knows that this is the way to make up harold's mind Offer him sex and sympathy, and hope for a real future in Vegas with Flag and his followers. Do we really believe that Flag is going to welcome Harold with open arms? Harold could just be a pawn, but he could also be useful in Vegas. So who knows? Harold makes his choice, and that's that. Both he and Nadine—they um, had their chance. They both fought with that side of themselves. Nadine a little bit more than Harold, but. Their desire to be a part of the free zone was evident, even if it was confusing for them. Nadine tried to use Larry to help her make that choice, but he didn't want her. Harold was realizing that people didn't know the Harold from a Maine. He could be someone new here. But Nadine tempted him, and he found her irresistible. So now, with these two living together, we'll have to wait and see what they have planned before they both leave Boulder. We will get a little bit more insight into their twisted relationship next week in Chapter 54. Um, And we'll also get to see Larry's discussion with Judge Ferris and how Stu, Nick, and Ralph plan to hypnotize Tom to send him out west. And that's it for this episode of The Circle Opens. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave me a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to everyone who's already done so. I truly do appreciate them. They help the podcast get uh, noticed, I guess. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at thecirclecloses at gmail.com or on social media at thecircleopens or at (laughs) thecircleopens.com. So I guess that's it for this week, you guys. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you all stay safe, stay healthy. And M-O-O-N, that spells see you next week.